Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily represent those of any organization, including One Generation Away. The freedom of a people to choose its leaders is the root of liberty. Keep alive this experiment in liberty. Liberty, in case you've forgotten, is the soul's right to breathe. Government should be very minimal in protecting liberty. Peace cannot be purchased at the cost of liberty. The sturdy ground of liberty. Liberty once lost is lost forever. Fight for their liberty and for our security. Guarantees individual liberty. This great republic born alone in liberty. 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 Just how much do you want liberty? This is Liberty Nation with Tim Donner, cutting through the double talk, taking on the topics, going after what the politicians really mean, and making it all clear. For your freedom and your liberty, Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. Yes, the end of the world as we know it. The unthinkable has happened. And Donald Trump has all but clinched the Republican nomination for president in what constitutes a true political revolution. Welcome back into Liberty Nation. And this week, we will examine the reasons behind the most remarkable political phenomenon of our lifetimes, the rise of a bombastic billionaire cutting, slashing, and insulting his way to a victory that people will be discussing for the rest of American history. And now, he aims his rifle scope at Hillary Clinton. We'll talk about why and how this all came down and where we go from here. We'll get perspective from the left when we're joined by Greg Sargent of the Washington Post. In our Say What segment, we'll play us some of the reaction to Trump's triumph, Hillary's conflict over coal, and echoes of, and how can you any longer be surprised by anything you hear in this election season, the JFK assassination. Plus, we've got Chewing the Fat, where we discuss trending topics and overlooked stories affecting your liberty with Scott Cosenza, a constitutional lawyer from one generation away, found on the web at onegen.org. That's O-N-E-G-E-N dot org. I actually wish the primaries were not over. It's no fun this way. I want the primaries to keep going. But everybody's out. I'm the only one left. That's okay, right? right? The only one left standing and who would have ever predicted that Donald Trump would wrap up the Republican nomination for president before Hillary Clinton, who was supposed to waltz to her party's nomination, but who on the very night Donald Trump clinched the GOP nomination with an overwhelming victory in Indiana on Tuesday lost to Bernie Sanders for the 18th time 
in a path to victory that still seems assured because of the Democratic superdelegates, those party hacks instructed to vote for her by the Democrat establishment. And that's the essence of this race now, isn't it? The ultimate insider Hillary Clinton against the ultimate outsider Donald Trump. That is the single biggest contrast in a race between the two most unpopular candidates since since they started measuring popularity. But how did this happen? How could this happen? How could this bombastic billionaire with no political experience come out of nowhere and vanquish more than a dozen A-list opponents? Well, let us count the ways. What say we count at least a dozen? This happened because the GOP establishment assumed that their voters would simply accept the same usual suspects, politicians, that they've been fed by the party for years, the same polite losers like McCain and Romney and Dole. But they didn't. This happened because the voters actually realized they could affect the process and send an unambiguous message of disgust to the party that's supposed to speak for them, but hasn't. This happened because Republicans gave their party control of the House and the Senate in overwhelming numbers in 2010 and 14, and they did nothing with it. They could have done at least some of the things they promised, but they didn't. This happened because the party has surrendered to the left in general and Obama in particular. They backed down and bowed to Obama at almost every turn, and when they didn't back down, they were beaten by him. This happened because the GOP failed to stand up to Obama's executive actions that, by their very nature, dared Republicans to do anything about it, and they didn't. This happened because the party completely miscalculated after the disastrous loss by Romney in 2012 and thought the way forward for them was to be more like the Democrats, to embrace a loving stance towards illegal immigration, to be kinder and gentler, and that their voters would agree. But they didn't. This happened because they surrendered without firing a shot in budget battles. Then Speaker of the House John Boehner thought the GOP voters would appreciate him taking a government shutdown unilaterally off the table before budget negotiations even began, but they didn't. This happened because the GOP thought their voters wouldn't mind their leaders doing nothing to combat the political correctness that has infected the land, but they did. This happened because the GOP and the Democrats live in such an insulated bubble and think they're so much smarter than the unwashed masses. But they're not. This happened because they thought the power of an outsider running on his own fortune instead of the hundreds of millions of dollars in influence peddling super PAC money wouldn't be that big a deal. But it was. They thought Trump could not succeed in overturning the tables of Washington's money changers. But he did. This happened because the establishment thought the voters would continue to accept the gross incompetence and cowardice of the people running the federal government to the tune of a $19 trillion debt. But they didn't. This happened because 
The GOP establishment thought their voters were interested a lot more in grandiose conservative policy prescriptions than appeals directly to their anger. But they weren't. This happened because the establishment thought no way there were enough voters to push this brash, outspoken, bombastic, freewheeling, insulting, politically incorrect celebrity over the top when it really, really came down to it. But there were. Donald Trump is the result of a long string of failures by a Republican Party that had people ready to turn to someone, anyone, who would promise to shake things up for real. Not the way politicians promise to do, but never actually do. And many or most of those people had given up hope that a guy would ever come along who would actually fill the bill. But along comes Trump promising to do exactly that. These people are so desperate for change that they care not a lick about his comments about Mexicans or Muslims or John McCain or anyone else because he's promising to do what they really want, blow up the establishment and start over. And as they say, to make an omelet, you got to crack a lot of eggs. Folks, this is what a revolution looks like. And one thing all revolutions have in common is that you can't possibly know how they will end. Trump in a landslide, Hillary in a landslide, who knows? But remember, you've got the quintessential establishment candidate running against the quintessential outsider in the most anti-establishment year of our lifetimes. So what does the left make of all this? What do they really think? What does the left really think about Trump as an opponent? We'll discuss that with Greg Sargent of the Washington Post when we return. But first, a quick reminder that the podcast of Liberty Nation is available from iTunes and other fine podcast providers. We'll be back. Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. today has been a political spectacle. We elect these guys to run the country. They're just not doing their job. This is Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. So what does the left really think about Donald Trump? Are they scared of him or do they relish his candidacy, believing he'll get slaughtered by Hillary? Joining us to discuss this is Greg Sargent of The Washington Post, author of The Plumb Line, Greg Sargent's take from a liberal perspective. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, you know, we've heard two very different viewpoints from the Democrats and the left. The first being that Hillary will roll over Trump because he's irreversibly alienated so many people and groups. The second being that he's a particularly formidable opponent riding a populist wave who's totally unpredictable and therefore dangerous. So from a liberal perspective, is Trump as an opponent, do you think, a blessing or a curse? Two things can be true at the same time, right? It's obviously the case that Trump is a highly unpredictable opponent who will defy all sorts of accepted political norms and will throw attacks at 
Hillary and Democrats that maybe nobody anticipated or might do it in the manner that nobody anticipated. And we'll do all sorts of, you know, intriguing things at his convention and on the campaign trail and so forth. And so, you know, it would be foolish of Democrats to think that this is going to be easy. On the other hand, there's reason to take from the data a fair amount of confidence that he starts out in a pretty weak position. His unfavorable ratings among major constituencies in the, in the general electorate are really just absolutely awful, almost unprecedentedly so, among uh, you know college-educated whites, non-whites, young voters, women, white women who are um, a... Um, a traditionally Republican constituency, too. And, you know, the fundamentals are stacked against him in many ways. The electoral map is bad for Republicans, and demographics keep trending the Democrats' way. Sure, he's unpredictable, and who knows what he's going to come up with, but right now you've got to say that she looks favored. Trump has been making a rather naked play recently for Bernie Sanders supporters, you know, on trade, on the Iraq war, on Hillary's hawkishness compared to Obama and Bernie, on Bernie being the victim of a rigged nomination process. What do you make of this notion that Trump could actually peel off a a consequential percentage of Bernie voters? I think there's certainly a danger for Hillary in, in one respect. It's certainly possible that a sizable chunk of Bernie supporters can't bring themselves ever to support her, uh, particularly young voters who've been brought into the process by Bernie uh, by by his sort of, you know, unabashed economic pro- progressivism and criticism of the establishment. Um, the notion that there would be any sort of crossover to Trump of any significance is is just it's so unlikely as it's pure fantasy i think this is a guy who's pledging mass deportations banning muslims denying climate change insulting women the idea that young voters would go for this guy is just it's it's pretty much unthinkable our guest is greg Sargent of the washington post author of the plumb line greg Sargent's take from a liberal perspective now in your view, what will Hillary Clinton's most of, I mean, there's so many lines of attack for both that both candidates can use. But what do you think uh, Hillary Clinton's most effective line of attack will will be on Donald Trump? And what will be his most effective line of attack on her? She'll probably, I'm not sure that there's one particular attack. It can all be sort of woven together into one broad argument that he's, you know, profoundly unfit for the job. You know, they'll go very hard at his bigoted statements, his his ban on Muslims, his mass deportations, his belittling of immigrants. They'll go very hard at that sort of stuff to to juice up the base and to really get turnout high among core Democratic constituencies. And they'll put Oh, more important is that they will link that to a, an argument that Trump is is really reckless and borderline insane, right? I mean, you know, th- that's basically what they're going to be saying. They're going to try to frighten swing voters like suburban women and blue-collar women, and justifiably so. I mean, he really has made a number of statements and proposals that are alarming. And so there's a way, I think, for the Clinton people and Democrats to link those two 
strands, the xenophobia and bigotry and the recklessness into sort of one larger argument about, argument about his fundamentally, temperamentally un, unfitness for the job. Now, Trump has a good argument against her. She's been part of the political establishment for 25 years, and, and they haven't gotten it done on wages. And, you know, he can say, I think, with at least well, – he, he can say plausibly that he's not part of the political establishment in, in certain ways that she isn't, uh, that she is part of the establishment. But on the other hand, now he's in a position where he's going to have to start, uh, you know, raising some money. He's going to be up against a $1.5 billion juggernaut. He's not going to self-fund to that degree. He's already saying he's going to – raise money for the party. He's even saying he's got, you know, um, contributions lined up from his rich friends to do that. He's, I think, going to have to give his assent to super PAC spending on his behalf. What I'll be curious to see is how he manages to keep up the argument against Clinton as a mm -hmm. creature of the establishment while benefiting from all this money himself. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying he can't manage that uh, argument. I'd be curious to see how he does, though. Yeah, he'll certainly have to pivot on that issue, because I think everybody agrees, including him, that he cannot fund. He's not he, he's not liquid enough, even given his wealth, to be able to fund what he needs from here on in. Um, but I'm wondering, all those statements, the outrageous statements that Trump made during his campaign about Muslims, about Mexicans, about, you know, John McCain not being a war hero, all of this stuff, there's, one thing about them is that there's nothing new there. They've been out there for a long time, unlike the Romney 47 percent statement, which basically sunk his campaign. I think everybody agrees in 2012, but it came in the middle of the campaign. Is the fact that all of this stuff about Trump is, is nothing new, does that make it harder for Hillary to plead the case? It's certainly possible that, that many of the general election constituencies haven't tuned in to the degree that the Republican primary electorate has, right? We've seen higher turnout among Republicans than among Democrats, and the Republican contest was legitimately contested in a way that the Democratic one wasn't. So it's possible that, you know, a lot of core Democratic groups and some swing voting constituencies didn't really tune in in any major way. And once they start to get reminded of the sort of the truly kind of nasty nature of a lot of these statements, it could jar them over again in a way that maybe they hadn't been before. But I, I guess if I were a Republican, what would be alarming me is the possibility of a lot more of it to come. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty unpredictable. I mean, we keep talking about how unpredictable this guy is, and that's being talked about as a potential positive. But, of course, it's also a potential negative, right? You never know what's going to come out of his mouth. Mm -hmm. even, even if he pivots, which I think he probably will try to do and tries to moderate, he could relapse at any point. You know, he's up in the middle of the night pacing around and logs on and starts tweeting. You never know what's going to happen. If Democrats can kind of rattle him and get under his skin, particularly in, at debates, I would anticipate Hillary would probably be trying to do that. You know, who knows how he'll react. Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much. Greg Sargent of The Washington Post. We're going to take a quick break, then come back with Say What? You won't want to miss it. We'll play you some of the reaction to Trump's triumph on the right, Hillary's conflict over coal, and echoes of... The JFK assassination. <laughs> Stay right there. Liberty Nation with Tim Donner.
This is Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. Say what? Say what? Say what? One more time. Say what? Say what? Say what? One more time. Say what? The portion of Liberty Nation where we treat you to some of the most wacky, astonishing, and damnable things uttered by politicians and the chattering class. And so it's no longer just a reality show. It's reality. The end of the world as the GOP knows it. Donald Trump is the Republican nominee for president of the United States. And so America will now have to deal with it. And that includes not just the Democrats and leftists who you'd fully expect to oppose him, but the Republicans and conservatives who first almost universally dismissed his candidacy, then warned that his nomination and God forbid his election would be the end of the world as we know it. Now, let me translate that for you. It means the end of their world as they know it. The Republican establishment, yes, but even more so now, the conservative establishment, the big thinkers, the expansive thinkers in the movement, like Bill Kristol and George Will, who have joined the Never Trump movement that's been a complete failure to date. Now, here was George Will writing out of both sides of his mouth in a recent column and you can't get any more never Trump than this, or more infected with Trump derangement syndrome, otherwise known as TDS. Here's what, uh, what George Will wrote. Conservatives have two tasks. One would be to help Trump lose 50 states. Punishment for his comprehensive disdain for conservative essentials, including the manners and grace that should lubricate the nation's civic life. Okay, but in the same column, the same column, he writes that a Trump defeat would lead to the Democrats taking control of the Senate, and thus, as he writes, a Democratic Senate would probably guarantee a Supreme Court with a liberal cast for a generation. That's the visceral hatred, and in this case, hypocrisy, of George Will. And Trump, well, he reacted predictably. George is a major loser. You know, he's a tower guy. Nobody watches him. Very few people listen to him. It's over for him. And I never want to support. You know, he's been writing these columns for, for a year ever since I announced and you know I had a run-in with him when I was in civilian life I didn't want to go to one of his speeches at Mar-a-Lago he made a speech at Mar-a-Lago and I find him to be a very boring person <laughs> so, so, so that's what Trump faces in terms of bitter opposition from the conservative establishment but there's also the matter of the Republican establishment and Speaker of the House Paul Ryan says he's not throwing his chips into the Trump casino yet. I'm just not ready to do that at this point. I'm not there right now. Uh, and I hope to, though, and I want to. But I think what is required is that we unify this party. And I think the bulk of the burden on unifying the party um, will have to come from our presumptive nominee. Um, I don't want to underplay what he accomplished. He, he needs to be congratulated for an enormous accomplishment for winning not now a plurality of delegates, and he's on his way to winning a majority of delegates. But he also inherited something very special. Uh, that's very special to a lot of us. 
Uh, this is the party of Lincoln, of Reagan, of Jack Kemp. And we don't always nominate a Lincoln and a Reagan every four years. Um, but we hope that our nominee um, aspires to be Lincoln and Reagan-esque, um, that that person um, advances the principles um, of our party and appeals to a, a, a wide, vast majority of Americans. Now, you know, a lot of Trump supporters complained about that, said Ryan should have endorsed Trump right away. But I think what Ryan did was fine. You know, look, lots of Republicans don't like Trump. And Ryan needs to send a message that he wants to vet Trump on their behalf before he delivers his inevitable endorsement. But it's the many ideologues in the party and the conservative movement, plus the Bush family and Mitt Romney, the ultimate establishment Republicans, who say they absolutely, positively will not support Trump. And that is one of the nominees' biggest headaches right now. And Newt Gingrich, a very possible vice presidential choice for Trump, said on Fox News that he certainly understands why. The pseudo-intellectual right-wingers uh, who have made a living in Washington, D.C. being brilliant while they <laughs> alienated the entire American people are showing you by their hysteria uh, the degree to which they're being repudiated, and they're just uh, absolutely don't know what to do. I mean, uh, the country has looked at their uh, lack of achievement, their lack of effectiveness, and has said no. Uh, in the case of the two Bushes and, and Romney, you know, I, I was one of Romney's competitors in 12. What do you think Mitt would have said if I'd gotten up and said, I'm not going to support you? I supported George H.W. Bush, even though I was a Reagan supporter and a Kemp supporter. What do you think George H.W. Bush would have said if I'd gotten up and said, I'm not going to support you? Well, uh, uh, he would have been put on the party blacklist. That's what that's what would have happened. But how have the Democrats reacted to the Trump de facto nomination? We talked about that in the last segment with Greg Sargent of the Washington Post, but it's hard to understand why Hillary Clinton would decide to skip showing up in Indiana and get beaten by Bernie Sanders there on the very night Trump became the presumptive nominee and choosing Hillary did instead to make multiple appearances in West Virginia, the heart of coal country. And lest we forget, with Hillary running essentially for a third Obama term, she owns Obama's war on coal. And let us recall this campaign promise by Obama in 2008, a promise he has most definitely fulfilled, and Hillary Clinton echoing him when speaking to a pro-green energy group recently. If somebody wants to build a coal-powered plant, they can. It's just that it will bankrupt them because they're going to be charged a huge sum for all that uh, greenhouse gas that's being emitted. Under my plan uh, of a cap-and-trade system, electricity rates would necessarily skyrocket. We're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. All right, so when Hillary inexplicably showed up in coal country smiling, she was confronted by a guy who lost his job as a coal miner. I just want to know how you can say you're going to put a lot of coal miners out of out of jobs and then come in here and tell us how you're going to be our friend because those people out there don't see you as a friend. What I said was totally out of context from what I meant because I have been talking about helping coal country for a very long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. I uh, expect to hear that one repeated over and over as Trump challenged Hillary 
in the coal mining states of the upper Midwest challenged her there this week and will challenge her in the general election. Many coal miners who are casualties in the Obama or now the Obama-Clinton war on coal take the measure of both candidates. But I got to tell you this, our Say What segment wouldn't be complete without the wackiest statement of the week. It came from, shockingly, Donald Trump, who on the morning of Tuesday's Indiana primary reacted to the prayer of the father of Ted Cruz, Raphael, by bringing up, you ready for this? The Kennedy assassination. Vote for the candidate that stands on the word of God and on the Constitution of the United States of America. And I am convinced that man is my son, Ted Cruz. The alternative could be the destruction of America. His father was with Lee Harvey Oswald prior to Oswald's being... Uh, you know, shot. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. What, what, what is this right prior to his being shot? And nobody even brings it up. So, so nobody's brings it up. So, of course, he had to. Now, it, it seems crazy. But if you look at that unidentified shadowy figure on the grassy knoll, looks a lot like Raphael Cruz. But, all right. <laughs> but seriously... There actually are several pictures of Raphael Cruz with Lee Harvey Oswald handing out pro-Castro pamphlets the summer before he murdered JFK. Of course, that story has now, unfortunately, become moot. Rats. And we'll be back with Chewing the Fat. Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. This is Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. Just talking loud, then say nothing. Just say nothing. Well, lest you believe otherwise, and believe it or not, there are actually things going on in the country other than the presidential election and. Here to prove it is Scott Cosenza, constitutional lawyer from one generation away, for the portion of the program which we entitle Chewing the Fat, where we discuss trending topics and other underreported stories affecting your liberty and one gen, by the way. Scott's organization found at onegen.org, O-N-E-G-E-N. Dot org, applying America's founding principles to the issues of today on Facebook, Twitter, and elsewhere. Hello, Scott. Hello, Tim. Yes, unlike the judges on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, I do try to apply America's founding principles to the issues oh, of today. What an, what an, <laughs> an absolutely cleverly crafted segue. Secret U.S. spy court approving all 1,456 wiretap requests last year. That's the headline, but let me ask you a question. Does this prove, A, that they only ask for these these uh, wiretap requests when they really need to, or does it show that these requests are just way too easy to get approved by the FISA court to which you referred? Well, it seems like both uh Yes to both is is probably the answer to the question, Tim. The number since the Snowden revelations has dropped precipitously, particularly with respect to the 
bulk requests. That is when they'll go to a Verizon or some other aggregator of information and just request the moon in terms of the level of information. And we've seen a significant uh, decrease um, basically since since the Snowden release. We've also seen, uh, according to the people that are the real experts in the field uh, in terms of analyzing these numbers, including Mark Rumold, who is at the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation, that the number of pushback cases. So these are cases where the uh, the court has said to the Justice Department, well, we're not so sure about this. Now, we're not rejecting your application, but we want to see some more information. So beef it up and come back to us. And th- we now have 80 of those cases in this latest release. Still, I think, scandalously s- small number. And in all the rest of American jurisprudence, since the time of the founding, we have an adversarial system. And the idea is that the truth will out in that adversarial system where both parties are competing, right? The state is competing for the administration of justice in a criminal case, and the defense is competing, you know, to have their their uh, defendant acquitted. And in the civil system also, it is an adversarial process. Mm-hmm. Both parties trying to win out. In this case, there is no adversary. It's just it's the, the, gover- prosecution. the government versus the government. Right. Basically, it's the government yeah. versus no one. Generally speaking, right. the court under the 2015 amendment to to the act, the court can ask for sort of some independent eyes on it. Uh, an amicus or friend of the court can come in. But what I think needs to happen, and I appreciate the need for. Uh, the highest level of confidentiality with some of these cases, certainly probably not as many as the government would argue deserve it, mm-hmm. but perhaps an installation of a permanent uh, defense counsel, if you will, right? Somebody who actually is is legally bound to uh, represent the interests of those who are going to be subject to these orders might be in order. But in any case, I think that any court that just grants all of the petitions that are put before it deserves our extreme skepticism. Well, unless we might have thought otherwise, the whole uh, incident uh, with Edward Snowden, and it wasn't really an incident so much. It was a, a decision made by him that the American people should know what's really being done to them and for them uh, by the intelligence services. I mean, the Edward Snowden affair has changed the entire trajectory of intelligence surveillance in this country, hasn't it? Certainly. The numbers bear it out. No question. All right. Barack Obama granting clemency to 58 Nonviolent drug offenders. Does this signal something of a white flag in the uh, federal government's relentless war on drugs, or is it more about criminal justice reform, or is it neither? I think it's probably neither, but perhaps I'm wrong. The reason why I think it was newsworthy is that Obama has historically only used the power of clemency or pardon. In at the end of the year, this is something that he's done as sort of a, I don't know, a Christmas gift or something to these people. And those of us who care uh, on a day to day level about civil liberties and the abuses of the criminal justice system want the president and the various governors to use their power to pardon and mm-hmm. commute 
inappropriate sentences. You mean sort of like so, uh, Bill Clinton did with Mark Rich on well, his way out so of the of White House? So, of course, that is the exact opposite. No, yeah, I'm talking right. about the person with no political power. You can't tell okay? when I'm being facetious well, I just after all these years? <laughs> no, My God. But, but, well, the reason, but the thing is, the people out there, there's a, there's a perception that, that it's only used for, the, for that purpose, right? The sort of friends of... Uh, the executive. And I think that it really needs to be used. And those of us who care about liberty on the conservative side really need to encourage executives to use it. And for in, we haven't had much of that in the conservative world. Nixon, by the way, as a percentage of applications, is the best president in recent history on commutations and pardons, far and away better than Obama or Carter, certainly Reagan or, or Bush almost gave none. And uh, so anyway, in this instance, we've seen uh, typically they are people who are nonviolent drug abusers um, who maybe were involved tangentially in a sale. Got caught up in the three strikes and you're out. Or, uh, or, or not even three strikes, just draconian sentencing mm -hmm. um, real, uh, where where they were a conspiracy, right? So they made one phone call or something like that and then were caught up in a major conspiracy in which they had little to gain and little power, but were sentenced to spend often the rest of their lives in prison. So I think it's good news and I, I think that the president should do uh, more of it. So... Well, meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, uh, a judge has ruled that it's okay for a school to suspend a student over something he posted on Facebook outside the confines of the school. Tim, I think this case is uh, deeply troubling. This is a federal court ruling out of the Third Circuit from a case out of, of York, Pennsylvania. The Central York High School had a bomb threat. The, the the case that we're talking about now doesn't involve that bomb threat except a, a student's comment about it. So there was a bomb threat in the school. The following day, this student uh, basically said on uh, Facebook, plot twist, bomb isn't found and goes off tomorrow. Just a throwaway kind of line, right? Mm -hmm. Ha ha. Mm -hmm. Wasn't directed at any students or the, the population of the school. Certainly wasn't meant as a threat. And the school superintendent, Michael Snell, and assistant principal, Jeffrey Hamm, decided that this student needed to be suspended. And unfortunately, the court ruled that, that there was an appropriate suspension. Uh, it, it also said that the Third Circuit Court of Appeals needed to weigh in and go further clarifying what well, I hope so, because this is an, I mean, let's just say this is a dangerous judgment It's uh, for a school to be able to suspend a student for something he writes on his own time, on his own. Non-threatening. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, it is troubling. And of course, social media is the way so many people communicate generally and certainly the way the youth of America communicates uh, today, that it is a, a serious infringement on their on their right to free expression if the administrators of the school are allowed to dip into their into their social media postings and then discipline them for them. Now, the issue of guns is one of the, I believe, underrated issues that's going to be debated in the presidential election. Uh, Hillary Clinton for more and more gun control. Donald Trump portraying himself as a very extremely pro-Second Amendment, which makes this next story somewhat interesting in a larger context. The, um, an embattled Virginia gun store suing the government 
uh, over their intent on shutting it down. What is this about? Well, it's a fascinating story, Tim. I wish we had more time to discuss it because it involves the free speech rights of the legislators themselves. But this gun store was the victim of a concerted campaign by elected leaders in Virginia, among others, to have the landlord non-renew their their uh, and basically kick them out. Because it's uh, culturally inappropriate to have a gun store in Arlington, Virginia, where this just is Just so people understand, Arlington County has voted Democrat in every presidential mm-hmm. election since Nixon McGovern. Okay, well, so they, they almost voted single-handedly for, have. They their, were Dukakis well, supporters. Uh, Arlington okay. is also the place that has almost univer- uh, almost single-handedly turned Virginia from a red state to a to a yes. purple state. And so the gun store has said. It's inappropriate for you to use the power of your office, right, with your letterhead and your your marshalling your resources to basically try to inappropriately compel what's called tortious interference with a contract. They had a legal lease. You can't do it. So we'll be following the case. All right. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Tim. And thank you for joining us. That's it for this week's edition of the program. But we will be back at you next week, same time, same station. Till then. This is Tim Donner saying, stand up for liberty, and we'll see you next time on Liberty Nation. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.